In the year 1519, Hernan Cortez arrived in the New World with uh, about 600 men. And if you've heard the story before, upon arrival soon after, he made history by destroying the ships that they used to land in this New World. And in so doing, he sent a clear message to his men that there was no turning back. They couldn't sail back if there's no ships. Two years later, they succeeded in their conquest of the Aztec Empire. And, but when the Cortes and his men landed in what today we would call Mexico, his soldiers didn't enjoy it. They didn't want to fight. They were tired of the voyage. They were, the, the natives were not very friendly to them. It was a strange land. And so imagine whispers probably growing amidst the people that, you know, let's, 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 let's go back. It was better before. You know, we had food that we loved, you know, the freedom that we had, the, the peace that we endured. And so, so let's go back. And, and Cortez, who, who wanted to stay in this land, would have none of it. Legend says that he motivated his men by destroying the ships. Now, now there's some debate whether he burned the ships or dismantled the ships. Irregardless, they're gone. There was no going back. And they were, they were faced with the stark choice now. They would either fight or die. Their eyes would need to be focused forward if they're going to survive. If they, if they continued to look back, they would be overcome. And, and their vision would direct their future forward. The same is true if you're, if you're running a race. From what I hear, I don't run them. But you're going to win if your eyes are forward. The way to finish a race is to, is to look forward, to press on, to endure to the end. And as believers, as Christians, we should look forward to the day of Christ Jesus when he will transform our frail and feeble bodies that are decaying with death looming, and he will change our failing flesh that is full of sin, and all the effects of sin will be reversed on that day. And we will gloriously be sinless and free from this deadly decay. And Paul, in our passage this morning, is wanting to direct the believers in the church of Philippi to that future day. He wants them to look forward, to press on, to even watch him as he looks to that day and to follow others as they look to that day. And and Paul is looking forward to the end of God's work on that day of Christ Jesus, as we saw in chapter 1. His prayer for for them then was that they would be full of the fruit of righteousness on that day. For him, it was to live as Christ, and to die would be gain. And he desired to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, he says. And he knows that every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on that day. And now he says we should have the same vision, looking forward, because the only way to persevere was to look forward to that day. So here is the main idea Just five words this morning. Our vision directs our perseverance. Our vision directs our perseverance. There is a day set, friends, already set, when Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sins, who has conquered death and risen triumphant from the grave to be enthroned in heaven, to return to give his people the perfection of their lowly, humble human state. There is a day set, and so we press on. That's the theme that we see. We press on and we look forward 
to that day. And so there's three points as we walk through this. If you take notes, this, it'll be on the screen, I believe, the three points of the outline. Press on towards Christ, watch others who follow Christ, and look forward to being with Christ. So number one, press on towards Christ. If you haven't already, we're in Philippians chapter 3. So turn there if you haven't yet. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 12 through 16 here in this first point and hopefully make our way all the way through the, the end of the chapter, even in scooting into chapter 4 for one verse. But first, press on towards Christ. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already attained this or, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to, to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. First off, what, what we are able to press on toward Christ simply because Christ holds on to us. We are his own. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he's saying to us, along with many other verses in the Bible, God has you. You are his, and nothing can take you out of his grasp. John 10 says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Nothing, no one, not even you, can remove yourself from the grasp of God if you are his. And because we are his, because he has saved us, we can press on. And we, we learn throughout the scripture, and we learn just from living. The Christian life is not a sprint, but a marathon to be run throughout a lifetime. We will endeavor to make it home to be with God forever as we press on. And, and there will be difficult terrain as we travel in this world. We will be like the pilgrim from Psalm 121 that says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help is in the Lord as we continue to press on into knowing him and, and living the Christian life. And then here in verse 12, Paul's point is that he's striving to seize the prize at the finish line simply because Christ has already seized him at the beginning of the race. He presses on because God is the one who, who started his work in him in the first place. And, and so we keep, we keep going simply because he keeps us going. It's not of us. We don't, we don't make it on our own like Paul. And we have the Lord keeping us to himself and helping us as we press on into him. But there's one thing that Paul will do in this race. You see that there? He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So instead of looking back to see how far he's traveled, Paul presses on toward Christ, toward him. He, he resisted the urge to look back and see how far he's traveled, because in that, he, he might begin to coast. The ships are already burned. There's no going back. He presses forward. And there are those in the church who, who, when they stop and even pause and look back over their life, they see perhaps how faithful they were with the Lord when their kids were at home. And they were in the scriptures and they, they led their families well and they served the church. They were there every time the church doors were open. And now they've taken their foot off the gas. They're coasting. 
They, they, their mind goes back to the glory days. They think, they, they think like Uncle Rico, if you've ever seen Napoleon Dynamite. Do you know that character? Middle-aged, former athlete who lives in a van and videos himself throwing a football. Where does he live? In the past, the glory days. Very simply, don't be like Uncle Rico. Don't glory in the past. And don't coast. Are you coasting? Are you just kind of floating along? You know, that, it's a hard question to ask, and, and I think you, you should ask others. Invite them into your life. Invite them in to ask hard questions, whether or not you're just coasting in your pursuit of Christ. To, li- to live in the past is to hide from the reality of the present and the challenges of the future. Those who are mature in Christ, he says, will be characterized by a wholehearted pursuit of fellowship with him, which looks to the future. But there are others who serve. They, they, they think, I did, I did my duty then, and it's time to cruise into heaven. But there's a problem with that mentality. There's no retirement in the Bible from, from faithfully following God. Now, you might get a pension in retirement from your employer, and you can ride off into the sunset for, for your, your finances. But there isn't any retirement from straining forward to what lies ahead in your walk with the Lord. There's no coasting. We're not to take our foot off the pedal. No, we, we continue to press on. We continue to, to press forward. And that's what Paul is saying here. And mind you, where is he writing this letter from? Prison. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to continue to press on. And if anyone had a, a moment to say, you know what, it's just time to just bail. It's time to just say, you know, enough is enough. It was Paul and all that he's gone through. But that's not what you read here as he writes this church. He says, press on to Jesus Christ. Press on toward the goal, verse 14, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on towards him. And what's the prize? A prize is the full and unclouded knowledge of Christ and free fellowship with him. That's what he's pressing on towards. That's what he's looking forward. Well, see, as Christians, we already know him. We already know his goodness and kindness. And so if we know that about God, how can we ease up now? How can we coast now? How do we take our foot off the gas? There's still yet more to understand about him, to know him more, to pursue him more. So rather than thinking that we've already attained everything that Christ has given us, he says the spiritually mature have their eyes fixed and focused on that day of Christ as we await our Savior from heaven. And so we press on. And this is something that Paul is constantly doing. He's looking forward. He's pressing on towards that day. He knows what's in store for Christians, and so he pushes himself forward. The Greek understanding of the word press on means to pursue. He's pursuing it with the Spirit's help. He's pursuing earnestly the goal of obtaining what he so desired. He's pursuing Jesus Christ. I also find it interesting, if we back up a little bit in these verses, that Paul isn't just talking about himself here. He isn't just talking about him and his pursuit of Jesus Christ. No, he says, he's addressing the church. He says, brothers, they are his family members of the faith. And Paul is making sure that they know that they are running a race right alongside him. 
See, Paul hasn't attained it, and neither have they. He is running this race along with the church. He is the, the leader. He is giving teaching and understanding, but he's also running this race with the members of the church. And the same is true for us in our church. The same is true for our elders. Although we have spiritual authority and responsibility to lead this church, we have not attained perfection. Let me tell you. We will not do everything right. We still need to grow. We still need to repent and change. And if your view of leadership is that we should be perfect, that elders and pastors should be perfect, this, I, this is the wrong church for you. There's only one shepherd that's perfect, and it's not me. It's Jesus Christ. But I should be endeavoring, continuing to press on, and repenting when I, when I don't meet those standards. Not coasting. And so if your bar is set too high, none of us will meet that standard as, as leaders. If Paul could meet that standard, then, then we will surely never meet that standard. And so we need to continue to endeavor to run this race along with you, pressing on together as Christians as we follow Jesus Christ. Leadership isn't about lordship either. It's about following Jesus, becoming like him, and then bringing others along in this journey. So what happens when you humbly realize that you need to grow in Christ-likeness? When you, need, you realize you need to continue to pursue Christ, that you have been coasting. First, I think your view of others will change. You will grow less smug and less critical of others because you believe you need to grow as well. You will tend to use your words differently. You will grow less self-righteous and you'll be quicker to identify the evidence of, of grace in yourself and in of others. And your love for Jesus will grow because you learn more and more about how much you need him to survive in this life. See, the mature in faith are always maturing. We will never stop maturing this side of heaven. We strain forward to attain Jesus Christ, the the Christian maturity in this life. And we press on because there's a greater future outside of this world because we see something on the horizon. You know, every couple of years, uh, NBC or whatever is broadcasting the the Olympics, you know, and so they have tons of programming as they lead up to all these events, right? And and without fail, every Olympics, they they, they find some athlete and then they dive into their life, right? They want to find out what makes them tick and they, they go and find out that they work at a grocery store or whatever it is and they spend 40 hours working and then they spend 30 hours training and they keep... They, they, they diagnose what's going on. Why is this person continuing to do this? And they ask that question. So why? Why would, you, why would you put yourself and your family through such hardship and through such toil for this? And the answer, always, the same answer is this. They picture themselves on the podium winning the medal. Where is their vision? It's always forward. They're looking forward to that point. Because that's what drives them to continue to, to sacrifice and to give. And that's the same as Paul here. Paul, why are you continuing to press on? Why are you continuing to endure such pain and trial? Because he saw something in the future. He knows what lies ahead. And as spiritually mature Christians, we should have the same focus. We press on 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so like Cortez, we must burn the ships if we're tempted to go back. Our eyes must be on, on the focused future because there's, there's still yet more to happen. I don't know if you know this, but we're still in the midst of March Madness. You guys know what that means, right? I have a few requirements to be in, in the office to work on staff with me. And one is you have to fill out a bracket every year. It's grounds for dismissal. Some didn't think I'm serious, but I'm serious. Krista knows. Krista did it years ago. She beat us years ago when she worked in the office, or her mom worked in the office. I require my staff to fill out a bracket. Every year I lose. Every year. This year is no different. I am going to lose. Um, but the, the, I love the tournament. I just love watching it. It's been fascinating. But there's something about the tournament, you know, the, the phrase that goes on if you watch. Are any of you basketball fans? Am I talking to myself here? All right, with a handful. The, the phrase is, win or go home, right? Because it's, a, it's literally a tournament of, if you win, you go on. If you lose, you're done. This, this mentality is win or go home. But see, in the tournament, you can't stay very long in that win. You win, and then you have a game. Oh, you get a day off, and then the next day. It just, you, the, the, the point is you're continuing to go forward, and they can't spend any time looking back. The, the, the eyes for them to continue on is the next game. And so that's where our focus as Christians continue to needs to be, right? Forward. You know, I said last week in passing that you cannot live with each foot in a different camp. Meaning you can't, you can't live with one foot with Christ and the other in the world and just try to navigate that. It, it's just not true. You, you may think it's true, but it's not. You either are two feet in or two feet out. And if you, you, you cannot move forward with Christ if you're going back. There will always be those, and this is what trips us up, I think, in this issue. There will always be those who profess faith in Christ but refuse to submit their lives to him. Friends, they're not with him. It's two feet in. And they, they run backwards and never move forward. And, and we, we think maybe they're converted. We think maybe they're following Jesus. But friends, if they're not following Jesus, they're not following Jesus. And so we need to pray to that end. We can't will them in. God's the one that saves. But that's the, the, the point is we, we're pressing forward to Jesus Christ. Will we do that perfectly? No. But we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. So that's the, the first point. The second one is this is what helps us to press on, is we watch others who follow Christ. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This might seem like strange advice for someone who just spent time discussing how he wasn't perfect and he was continuing to pursue Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't have any spiritual delusions here of grandeur about himself, but he recognized how growth happens on earth. We, we watch others and we grow and change. And see, as, as Christians, we're 
God's people are, are living illustrations, although imperfect. We're living illustrations of Jesus himself. Do you, friends, moms and dads, do you want your kids to follow Jesus? They're going to follow you. So if you're not following Jesus, it's going to make it more difficult and challenging for them to see that. We need to follow And God works in his people by the Spirit to produce grace-filled lives that show what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And God makes people display fragments of Christ's image, reflections of his glory. And God delights to use men and women as as the method for spiritual growth in others. And so at this point, Paul's letter, he, he isn't so much just concerned about beliefs that are believed, but he's also thinking about behavior that's shown because of the beliefs they believe. And he uses this biblical imagery here that you hopefully caught there in verse 17 of walking. And then he's going to contrast it later here in a minute of those who walk opposed to Jesus. But in the Old Testament, uh, people of faith, those were the ones who walked with God, Genesis 5 says. They were instructed to walk in the ways of God, as Deuteronomy says. They were not to walk in the way of sinners, as Psalm 1 says. And Paul continued to use the same language in his letters. In Colossians, he says, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the way a person walks is the way in which they approach their everyday life. It's how people live and what people live for. The way in which we walk shows our hearts and our commitments and our desires. And so Paul desires the church here to watch his walk and then emulate him. See, Paul realized that he couldn't appeal to the Philippians to follow his teaching if they weren't able to see it lived out in the flesh and blood and life of his example. This is why the preaching of the gospel can never be isolated from the life of a church. This is why watching a preacher or watching a service online is never enough. You may appreciate certain TV preachers, but that's not how God planned it. This is why attending a church where you don't have access to the pastors and elders is never a healthy long-term option. I always feel bad when I meet people and they say, I attend a large church, four or 5,000, and I've never met the pastor. I've been there 20 years. I, I feel bad. You need to be able to see how, how your leaders are living so that you can be faithful into what Paul is saying here, because it's helpful not only to the members, but to the leaders. Because we recognize we have people watching us. We can't just do whatever we want and live however we please. To me, in my, in my stubborn, blunt mind, there comes a point when a church is just too big. So I'll die on this hill, and that's all right. If a church is too big, they just need to split, healthy split, and form another church so that we can live out this pattern in Scripture, so that the people know who their leaders are and they can emulate that. Another reason why this teaching that Paul is saying of, of watching me 
was very important to the church and to Philippi was because the entire New Testament wasn't completed yet. They didn't have the total teaching of Paul. I mean, just think for a minute, a minute of, of living the Christian life without the book of Romans. Right? The ladies are going through that, right? It's a fabulous study. They didn't have it. So how important was it to see, not only hear teaching from Paul, but then to see it and others, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago of Timothy and Paphroditus. Then I'll just hear the teaching, but then to see it displayed in their life. It's so important. They would have questions. What does Paul think on this certain issue? And those questions would arise. And so this is why this is a regular thing that Paul encourages his churches with. To the Corinthians, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. They could follow Paul because Paul followed Christ. And Paul wanted them to to watch how he lived in the midst of suffering and pain. He wants them to watch as he continues to trust in the Lord. They needed to see this. He wants them to have a, a blend of assurance and anticipation, humbly admitting that they haven't arrived yet, and and, and eagerly striving for more. The the blend of life where we will be more patient with others who, like us, haven't arrived yet. See, Paul is on to something here. Because when you're at peace with your identity in Christ and are defined by the cross and the resurrection in the past, removing your guilt and receiving his righteousness, then you're looking forward to that heavenly city from which you will turn and go to, you will pursue this continued growth in godliness without nervousness, without worry and anxiety. And you can wait for continued growth in other people that live with you. And, and, and do it without an impatient frustration because you know how long it's taken you to grow. See, following others who follow Jesus Christ helps us to follow Jesus Christ. And so who are you, who are you looking to, to follow in your Christian life? I said this this morning in the equipping class, that Christian life is not a solo event. We should be walking with others in this Christian life. So who are you following? Even more so, who's following you? Now, some of that's not up to us, right? But let me ask this question. Are you living in such a way that it would be good for others to follow you? That's maybe a more pressing question to to think through. And, And only you can answer that. Are you living in such a way that it would be good and healthy and godly for others to follow you, to emulate you? So we should follow fellow Christians and pastors and teachers only insofar as they follow Jesus Christ. And when they veer off, friends, we need to to veer the other way. Do you look for, admire, and imitate the Christ-likeness you see in others? Do you pray for yourselves lest we cause others to stumble by bringing shame upon the Lord? Do you pray that others will catch a glimpse of Jesus through the way in which you honor him in your life. Paul says this, that we should follow others in their walk with the Lord, and then he warns us. He continues on, because not everyone who professed to be a teacher or pastor of the faith was actually following Jesus Christ. 
as Paul continued in this passage, he's broken by this. He says that he's telling them, he's writing even with tears of those who walk now as enemies of the cross of Christ. We're not certain about who he's talking about here. It could be the Judaizers that we talked about earlier, or it could be a group of a whole different group. It could be a, a, a group of people that were in the church and no longer. Either way, we're not sure, but Paul is writing with, with carefulness and warning to them. See, the cross is the touchstone of both true doctrine and true practice. When we list, listen to or sit under teaching of someone, we must always ask, what do they say or don't say about the cross? What place does the cross of Jesus have in their lives? If you're listening to teaching, whether that's here, other churches, or online, and they never mention the cross, they never talk about the gospel, they just have hobby horses they're always talking about, friends, don't waste your time. It is not worth your energy. No matter if you agree with the hobby horse. Where does the cross of Christ lie in their teaching? Can they say with Paul, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, this is the test. Where the cross of Christ's death as a means of forgiveness of sins is denied or even ignored, there must be a suspicion then that they're enemies of this message. Even if they're helpful, even if they're really encouraging, they have a great smile on TV. It needs to be questioned. Where's the cross? Where is the gospel? See, Paul says here, for those that are enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. He gives us some evidence here of this. He says their God is their belly. The word belly would be better translated as their sensual appetites. Not only is the doctrine of the cross ignored, but the doctrinal teaching isn't lived out in the lives of the teachers. Do they teach and preach and live out their teaching? Or, or is the sermon just a performance? Do they seek to live lives of self-denial and devotion to God alone? Or are they stuck in their self-indulgence? says they glory in their shame. In Paul's day, as much of ours, there were preachers and teachers whose ambition was to acquire more wealth and, and status, and they're attracted by possessions and reputation and positions of power. He says their minds are set on earthly things. These were the, the type of teachers who were really excited about earthly and worldly things. Essentially, they weren't captivated by Jesus Christ or his cross or the resurrection. See, it's a sad and sobering thing for Christians who profess Christ and yet never boast in the cross and whom, whose minds are continually on worldly things, who are more interested in satisfying their, their own indulgences in this world. Friend, the encouragement for us is to find people who are captivated by the gospel and follow them, listen to them, watch them. They will affect your vision forward in your life. The people you follow, the people you spend most time watching, they will affect how you think and how you act in this world. They will affect how you set your priorities for this world. And so this, this is not just for the, the high school student, right? of choosing the right crowd in high school. This is for all of us. 
And so the question, does your group of people, your friends, the people you, you admire and watch, are they seeking after Jesus Christ? Are they pursuing Him? Are they following Him wholeheartedly? And if not, you need new friends. You need to follow someone different. See, the people that we follow and admire, we talked about this a couple weeks ago too, they're, they're, good, they're either for good or for ill. And, and that's how it works. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm, as Proverbs 13, 20 says. So those that you admire, those that you watch, those that you follow, either lead you into more wisdom or they lead you into more foolishness. And so we need to, we need to choose carefully those that we follow, those that follow Christ, and, and then follow their example as they pursue Christ. Now that's point two. Here's point three. Look forward to being with Christ. Now, having warned the Philippians about the enemies that are around them, Paul switches from the negative to the ultimate positive. And I don't know about you, but I, I needed to be reminded this morning of the future that we have that's outside of this world. Christians, we are aliens and strangers in this world. Our true home is with Jesus Christ in the presence of God. This is not it. Although there's many things to enjoy in in the relationships and and this life and the church now, this isn't it. Paul says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The Philippians, as he writes to them, were citizens of the commonwealth of heaven. They belonged to a different city than Philippi. This was particularly important for the Philippians because Philippi was was self-conscious, a little Roman city. And and because of that, there were certain benefits that they would experience. And yet, even in Philippi, they they didn't have full citizenship of of the Roman-run town. And Paul's saying, it doesn't matter. You might miss out on the full citizenship here in, in Rome and what Rome may offer, but you're full citizens of a heavenly city. And that was their present, ongoing reality. And the same is true for us, friends. Our citizenship that matters the most is in heaven. We are just passing through. This world is not our home, no matter how comfortable it may seem to us. And so we need to continually look beyond this world to find our identity in this, in this life. We, we don't look back. We look forward. C.S. Lewis writes about this idea in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next world. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this world. If you really want to make an impact and make a difference in the world in which you live, the community you live, the workplace that you have, then you have to have hope that is outside of this world. If our only hope is here, we will be crushed. 
we will be disappointed always. It will never meet that standard because we're, we're made for more. Friend, if the grave is the farthest horizon you can see, if your citizenship is limited to this earth and to this country and this life and the few decades that can offer a set of earthly priorities that tell you to grab everything you can and build it up and find your comfort because this is all you're going to get, this is the only way you're going to be happy, then yeah, you'll be happy for a moment and it won't last. And ultimately, it will never be enough to satisfy you. You need a hope outside of this world if you're going to make it in this world. You know, that's why we share the gospel here each week. Jesus and the life he offers is your only hope to live in this world. And so we implore people on a regular basis to turn to him in faith and to trust in him and become citizens of that kingdom that will last eternally. Paul is saying here, citizens of heaven truly walk a different path than everyone else. They, they follow people with a different set of priorities. And they ultimately end up in a different destination than everyone else. We can surely enjoy God's good gifts to us in this life, but we cannot idolize them. We have to have the right vantage point of them. We have to have, as Christians, our eyes on the next world and what's to come and then anticipate with hope and joy because it's going to be good. See, from beginning to end, friends, salvation is a process of transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. That's what we see in the life of Paul. Understanding this life and all that he had to live for. He had a lot to live for from an earthly standpoint until Christ seized him on the road to Damascus. And then he changed him. And he learned to live for things that will last. That's the point here. Living for the long term. Not with an eye on the quick and easy methods of spiritual advance, which is so evident in the, in the teaching of false teachers. No, growing in Christ, it takes time, it takes energy. There is no fast track. It takes patience and perseverance as we continue to pursue Jesus Christ. As the psalmist that was, was saying in, in Psalm 86, it was read earlier by Carly, he says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. See, where your vision is directs your perseverance. Do we spend more time right now worrying about our earthly matters that we forget our future glory with God? We have the most encouraging news in the world. This is as bad as it will ever be for us as Christians. We will see him soon. And soon we will receive a new body that is fit for a new heaven and new earth. Because the best for us is yet to come. Our Savior has already rescued us from God's wrath on the cross. And that's amazing enough, right? But that's not all that he has in store for us. He will also rescue us from this world. 
When, when he comes back, he's going to raise our sinful, stained, suffering, scarred, beaten, broken bodies from the dead. Just as he emerged that third day from a sealed cave, never ever to be harmed again by pain or disappointed or traumatized, so our Savior will give us bodies like his. Do you think about that, friends? No more muscle aches in the morning. No more colds that linger on for months. No more fevers or sore throats or broken bones or arthritis. No more eyes that grow dull. No more memory loss or food allergies or heart disease or cancer. And best of all, no more desires bent in on themselves in guilty self-indulgence. Instead, we will have bodies prepared to please our Savior in every way. And we should look forward to that day. This is the destiny of every Christian in this room. You are a citizen of a better country than anyone on this earth, than any country on this earth. And so that's why Paul says, and I I believe verse 1 in chapter 4 should be in the rest of the section, but he says in verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Because of the hope that we have yet, stand firm. Let your values and behavior represent your status as citizens of heaven. Stand fast as citizens of heaven, walking with humble patience and eager hope and selfless service for others until Jesus comes back. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that just motivates our hearts to focus on you and not ourselves. And you know we we spend too much time looking inward and not enough time looking out and looking forward. So I pray that our vision will be centered on you this morning. And may we spend our time and energy resting in you and your promises for us and not be flustered by this world. Correct our vision if it's been lacking. May we not have hope solely in this world, but on the one to come. And may our hearts rest there. And we do pray that you give us perseverance in this life as we await the next. Help us to be faithful with your help in, in the gospel and the relationships that we have in the communities in which we live. Help us to serve you. And Father, we do pray that you would be honored and glorified in us, individually, in our families, in our community. But I pray that you would be honored and glorified in our church, corporately. That we would seek to bring you honor and glory as we await that final day when we will see you face to face. And we pray this all in the hope of what Jesus Christ has done for us and the long-awaited future to be reunited with him. In his name, amen.